Let's stand together as we come now to the Bible. Find it on uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, we're reading from verse 22 to chapter 6, verse 4, actually. Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 22, chapter 6, verse 4. Let's pray as we come now to God's Word. Father, would you help us uh, by your Holy Spirit to soften our hearts that we might hear the voice of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. So friends, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22, and reading to chapter 6, verse 4, let's hear God's word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not Provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do please sit down. We come now to this passage on Memorial Day weekend, and it's a a complicated passage in some ways that requires a little more than the sort of 140 characters or less kind of sermon uh, common these days. Let me introduce it for us um, with a a narrative from our own family life. We now have four children, um, but uh, this comes from when we just had one and we were expecting our second child. And it was due to arrive uh, pretty soon, uh, the next few days or so, and I went off to work uh, uh, that Tuesday morning. And at 11 a.m., I got a phone call from, uh, from my wife, Rochelle. She was feeling tired and wondered whether the baby might arrive that day, so wanted me to go home. So, you know, back home, I went and I got to our house. I remember the precise time, 11.20 a.m., and I stopped outside before I turned the key in the lock, thinking to myself, the baby might arrive today, you see. And so I went inside, and as I walked into the kitchen, I was greeted by my wife standing there, phone in hand, talking to the doctor, and in the other hand, a newborn baby. This flummoxed me a little. (laughs) Do I take the baby? Do I take the phone? You know, all these options. 
So I got on the phone to the doctor in the end, and he told me, don't worry, everything's okay. The paramedics are on their way. And in that city, I don't know whether the same is true here, but the first responders are firemen. So it's really funny. These, you know, what firemen are like, these big men, these big guys come in, six foot five, 230 pounds, you know, big boots, clomping throughout our apartment, beepers and radios going off all the time. And then they, they see the, the, the baby and they go all gooey, you know. <laughs> and so um, the funniest bit of it really was, uh, so they, they go off to the hospital and they take an ambulance and uh, it's just a block or two away, the hospital, where we were then. And, and as I said, the funniest part was afterwards, the insurance company, when they billed us for the ambulance ride, they billed us for two people in the ambulance, you know. Moments later, it had been one, but now it's mother and child, two. And I just gave up bureaucracy, whatever, so two people. I think that was the moment that I fully realized that family life was beyond me. I suppose I'd always known that, but it was really you know, brought into true perspective that morning. And I suspect most of us get to that point at some time or other, whether it's a child or a relationship dynamic or whatever it is, at some point we get to the place where you just think, this is beyond me. This is is too big for me. I can't do this. And what this passage is saying is, in a sense, that's a good place to be. See, actually, the purpose of marriage, of being a parent, of being a child, husband to wife, the whole purpose of family life, as we're looking at family this morning in our series, The Bible Explained, the whole purpose of family is to point us to a higher reality, cause us to depend upon the Lord, whose name is frequently mentioned in this passage, upon Jesus himself. Now, we're looking at this passage, and we're just kind of parachuting into Ephesians because we're doing this series on the Bible Explained, and we've come, we're doing doctrines and practices, and we've come to family. So let me just set the context for you in the book of Ephesians. See, in the book of Ephesians, Paul is making the case for the church. Paul, you see, is in prison when he writes this letter, and he's been put in prison for his insistence that in the church, Uh, belong both Jews and Gentiles. And there's no division, according to Paul. They're one in Christ, and he was thrown in jail for that insistence. And so in this circular letter, probably uh, written to the Ephesians and probably passed around other churches, written about the same time as its parallel letter, the the letter to the Colossians, and actually delivered by the same person, Tychicus. In in this letter, Paul is explaining to these churches and Ephesus in particular, that the church, this is why he's been put in jail, and now he's explained, the church, because of what Christ has done, abolishes, it represents that abolishment of the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, one in Christ. And so now he comes to the end of the book and he applies that message to family life. You see, the point he's making is that family is to be a little c church, as church is to be a big family. So when we feel it's beyond us, that's part of its purpose. The the power for this family, as a Christian family, is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what Christ has done, and all our relationships in family, husband and wife, parents to children, they're all made possible by Christ, carried out in the Lord, in Christ, and modeled by Christ's sacrificial relationship 
to the church. And we need to have that context in mind, particularly when we come to difficult words like submit. When we come to such words like that, Paul is constantly, I think, defining them for us by Christ, you see. Now, he does that, of course. It's pretty obvious how to break up this passage into four categories, doesn't he? It's these family relationships, wife to husband, husband to wife, children to parents, parents to children. We're going to look at those four categories. And, of course, the, you could have, in a sense, the picture in your mind of a cross and these four kinds of relationships so that might help you as we go through it. To bear that in mind, for the cross is at the heart of the Christian family. Well, first then, wives, he says, submit to your husbands. And this, of course, is verses 22 to 24. But he returns again uh, in verse 33 to the same idea when he says, wives, respect your husbands. So we're not to get hung up on the particular word that he uses. It's the idea that he has in mind, for he preaches the same idea when he uses the word respect later. Now, it's true that this submission to husbands is uh, covered by the general submission we are to have for each other that he talks about in the immediately preceding verse of verse uh, 21, where he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there is a general submission to each other in the Christian uh, family, in the Christian church, a general respect for each other, a general love for each other, and that carries on through all our relationships as Christians out of reverence for Christ. That's certainly true. That is the context here. There's no doubt. But then there's, it's also true, plainly, uh, that Paul has a particular kind of respect. I mean, he, he talks about that and submission. He talks about that, uh, which Paul encourages that wives in particular are to have uh, as an expression of that general category, in particular to their husbands. Now, as has often been noticed, this is made a lot easier when husbands also fulfill their side of the bargain, their side of the ideal Christian family here. It's much easier to do that. I mean, it's relatively easy to submit to someone who loves you as Christ loves the church. That's no great burden. You see, for the husband to love you that way, what does that mean? It means for him to give up his own desires, to serve you, to pour himself out for you. And see, the husband here is called to self-sacrificial leadership. And for someone to serve in that way, doing what is best for you, well, it's no great hardship to submit to what is best for you. But still, you'll say, what does it mean to submit? Well, here are some things which it does not mean. It does not mean being a doormat. It does not mean sublimating your personality in some kind of psychological repression. It does not mean not having an opinion, not able to be yourself or voice your own viewpoints. It does not mean uh, being unable to say uh, what you think in matters pertaining to the family direction or even, uh, I think, decisions. It does not mean an old-fashioned patriarchal society where it's true women were typically less educated than they are thankfully today. No, you see, Christianity was the great movement of freedom for women. And we should notice that that's still the case. When we look around the world today, that it's the Christian gospel that has freed women from patriarchal domination, domination of various religions. And the Christian gospel still does that today. 
So it's Christians that go into the slums. It's Christians who free women from sex trafficking. Christians allow women to be who they are meant to be in Christ, where there is neither, as Paul says elsewhere, neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. So that's what it does not mean, all the caricature. (laughs) What does it mean? Well, it's uh, difficult to script precisely, and Paul doesn't script it precisely, but here are a couple of thoughts that I've often found helpful when I've shared them with people, and perhaps you will too. So here they are. One. The word submit is, I think, to be understood generally by the category of Christ submitting to the Father. You see, so it's all defined by who Jesus is in this passage. So Jesus is entirely God. He is equal to the Father, yet he submits to him willingly. So if Jesus can be worshipped as Lord of heaven and earth and yet submit to the Father then whatever submission means, it does not mean less than, unworthy, or somehow diminished. No, Jesus is fully God, yet submits to the Father God. So it seems to me that having that idea of the Trinity is really helpful to have in our mind when we see this word submit. Jesus equal with God, and yet God the Father, and yet submitting uh, to Him. The other thought that I think is helpful here in the context is obviously that the church uh, submitting to Christ. Now, obviously, as we will see, that puts a big responsibility on the shoulders of the husband to put the wife's needs first, to die to their own needs and desires every day for the sake of their wife. But it also gives a sort of empathy uh, that the wife is to have for her man. I often share these kind of things when I'm doing weddings, and if you've heard me do weddings, you may pick up some of these sort of themes seems to me that men need to be respected. We all need that, men and women, but there's a particular way in which men are wired where they need to be respected. And that's how you can love your husband. If you're not sure about that, wives, women, just watch how men relate who are good friends. Men who are good friends always respect each other. And conversely, if you want to start a fight between uh, a man and, and your, uh, between a couple of men, all you have to do is disrespect them publicly. And there you go. And so men need respect in the same way that women need adoration. And, and it seems to me that many women make the mistake, you see, of trying to love their man with a motherly love. But you see, instead, men need the love of a wife, that is, respect, honoring, that kind of love. It seems to me that most men need to know, again, of course, we all need respect and we all need love, so we're making fine distinctions here, but it seems to me that men need to know that there is one person in the world for whom they are the hero, their wife. They need to be the head of their wives, they need to be held up and honored. Now, what does that mean? Again, I I cannot script it, and Paul doesn't script it, and I'm certainly not going to attempt to do so. It can mean little things. It can mean big things. You you know the story of the man who says to his wife as they arrive at a party, and he says, now, don't try to stop me each time I say, stop me, if you've heard this one. Well, that's one example. It could be many others that you could think of, but... 
the way to fulfill the general category of verse 21 is to honor, respect, hold up for esteem your husbands. And here's the thing that for many women is counterintuitive. But all the men here will understand what I'm saying when I put it like this. That as you do that, a man will know that he is loved. So wives, submit to your husbands as defined by Christ's relationship to the Father, the Trinity, and Christ's relationship to the church. But that also then means something reciprocally for husbands. And uh, so Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. You really can't pull these two threads apart. They do depend upon each other. It's not a, a domination. It's not dominating. It's a dance. They really do go together. So why uh, husbands love your wives. And as, as Paul teaches on that, he holds up the cross in particular. He says, pour yourself out. It's a sacrificial kind of language. So the cross is the model for what it means to be a husband. So a husband is not the kind of head who sits back and takes life easily. And nor is it just about buying flowers and all that kind of romance. So I'm sure, men, that's a good thing to do. But no, at its core, it's a change in the basic control module of your lives when you get married, when you act in this kind of way as a married man. That is, you're, no, you're now living, no longer living for yourself, you're now living and dying for someone else. So in the same way that Christ loves the church, so men, we are to love our wives. Now just think about that. That is a high calling. And perhaps that's why Paul spends longer talking about that. It's a difficult thing to do. And Paul actually adds an additional motivation to help us with that. So he says, if you love your wife like this, it's a high calling, but if you do that, actually you're just loving yourself, he says. She's one with you, so to not die for your wife in love is to not love your own body. So care for her, nourish her, adore her. Now, see, here's, here's how this works. And again, I use these themes often in weddings, but in the same way, and you may have heard that themes, I've done weddings, but in the same way that men need to be respected, so women, again, we both need both these things, we're making fine distinctions, but women need to be adored. So I often say to men, if you forget everything else in your marriage, and I'm not encouraging you to forget everything else, but if you do, if you forget everything else in your marriage, but you remember this, you will not go too far wrong, and this is Adore your wife. Pour your life out for your wife. Love her as you love yourself. Now, men often get this wrong because they, they think wrongly about it. Perhaps a woman will say something and a man will go into full-on fix mode. Men often think that women need to be fixed. But you see, no, as every Don Juan knows, the royal road to a woman's heart is adoration. Now, I'm treating these two relationships, husband and wife, together because Paul weaves them together in this passage. And, and also because I want you to see, as I switch the metaphor now, how Paul connects the dots to a bigger, more mysterious part of, uh, of his framework about marriage. So he says, look at verse 32. He says, it's a profound mystery. This mystery is profound. It's not just a mystery, it's a profound one. <laughs> And then he says, 
Oh, hold on, Paul, I, I thought you were talking about marriage. But he says, no, I'm talking about Christ and the church. So when he quotes from Genesis about God's ideal for marriage, and when he gives instructions about wives submitting and husbands' self-sacrifice, when he does that, he's actually speaking about Christ and the church. This is a mystery, he says, a, mystery, a profound one, a mystery that is profound. So here's how this works. In other words, the love of a man for a woman and vice versa and the other way around is intended by God right from Genesis chapter 2, right from the Garden of Eden, right from the beginning, to be a mystery. That is a technical word for Paul, a thing that was hidden but is now revealed in Christ. And in particular, in Ephesians, Paul has a particular uh, uh, expression of that mystery. So if you go to chapter 3 with me to verse 4, you'll see this is the mystery of Christ, chapter 3, verse 4. And he explains what he means by that mystery here. Again, in Ephesians, he's talking particularly about the church. So here, verse 6, this mystery is that the gospel, the Gentiles, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. That's the mystery. One in Christ, Jew and Gentile. So, Here's, here's how you need to think about it. Your love for your husband, your love for your wife, is designed by God right from the beginning to speak, to be a message of Christ's love for the church. And in particular, here in Ephesians, he explains of the way in which the sacrificial death of Jesus has brought all nations, even Jews and Gentiles, together in Christ. So very practically then, how do you apply that? In other words, the very difficulty sometimes that we all experience at times, I, we all do, the very difficulty of getting along with you know, your spouse, getting along with a woman, getting along with a man, we're different. The very difficulty of doing that is God's way of showing that in Christ it can be done. So when you love self-sacrificially, when you... When you submit and honor and respect, either way, those different ex expressions of putting the other person first, when you do that, you are sending a message to yourself, to your family, to the watching world. You're preaching a message that, that Christ's love can bring together all nations by the power of the gospel. It's that important what you're doing when you die to yourself in, in marriage and love each other. Your marriage is not a private affair under God's, uh, God's intention. It's a mystery. That is, it is a pulpit. It is a sermon. It's a mystery that has now been revealed in Christ that all nations can come together in the family of the church. So the, the same then is true as we move on now to the relationship uh, as we think of husbands and wives and now the relationship between children and parents and parents and children. Same is true, Paul quotes now from Deuteronomy rather than from Genesis, so it's a little different, but the same kind of idea uh, that this mystery now revealed in marriage, he quotes from the law, Deuteronomy, to explain how the law is fulfilled in Jesus with a promise. He, Jesus is the Lord of Deuteronomy. So the story then, the redemption that brought Israel out of Egypt, the law came out of that, uh, after that redemption, he redeemed Israel from out of Egypt, is now fulfilled in Christ's death on the cross. And the first commandment, that is the first ethical commandment of the Ten Commandments, 
directed towards children relating to parents, is now directed towards Christian children obeying parents, as that whole series of promises in the Old Testament is now fulfilled in Christ, you see. So wives submit to husbands as understood by the Trinity, by Christ's relationship to the church, but now, and then husbands self-sacrifice for wives as understood by Christ's death for the church. But now, in a similar kind of way, he turns the kind of uh, picture now to children and parents. A third, children, he says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then he gives a reason, doesn't he, that it will bring blessing and fullness of life. Now, three quick points about this obeying parents, which we need to kind of tease out just a little. One, in the ancient world, you did not stop having responsibility to obey parents, actually, until your parents were dead. Now, today in our culture, that takes place perhaps a little earlier, you know, after 21 or something like that, perhaps when you leave home. In other cultures, it's at different stages. But we just need to realize that applying this passage needs to be done in a, in a way that is uh, uh, sensitive and appropriate to the culture in which, in which we live And we can't do all of that now, but we just need to make mention of that point. Two, obey your parents can be tricky when you are a Christian and they are not. may not be many people for whom that's true here. There will be some. But globally, there will be many. And so we need to make sure we get that thinking right. So what does it mean to obey your parents in the Lord in that case? Well, if a parent asks you not to believe in Christ, then to obey your parents in the Lord, what will that mean? Well, it means to disobey them in this regard, for that is not in the Lord, is it? You must, you must first obey the Lord. But having made that clear uh, line, it, there can be other more subtle things. Perhaps if you do have a Christian parent, where they ask you to do a non-Christian parent, where they ask you to do things that, that you could do that wouldn't offend them and are not uh, against you following Jesus, and perhaps there'll be ways that you can honor them appropriately as a Christian child of a non-Christian parent. Again, we cannot pass all out those distinctions. We just need to acknowledge that they can be there for some people here and certainly for many globally. But then three in particular, and this will be true for many of us who, if, if you are a child, remember that to obey your parents, that's what Paul was saying, is simply good for you. It's just simply good for you. That's his argument here, as he quotes from Deuteronomy. So look at it like this. There are few other people on the face of the planet for whom these two things will be true. They will want what is best for you, and they will know you better than anyone else. That's true. If you have godly parents, those two things are true. What Paul is saying, make the most of that massive advantage. If you have godly parents especially, to obey them and honor them. They want what is best for you and they know you better than anyone else does. Now, of course, today we're more often encouraged, instead of honoring our parents, to blame our parents, aren't we? But the Bible is right, isn't it, though, that it is right to obey your parents. It's always right to honor your parents. And Paul is saying this is a key to receiving the promise of Deuteronomy, things going well in the land, in the, in the fulfillment of the covenant promises as a Christian, things going well for you in that sense. 
Now, if you are a child who also has children, you will know how hard it is to be a parent. And so uh, children have mercy on your parents. And if you are a child who does not yet have children, then take it from me, having children and doing the best for them is hard work. And parents are to be honored and obeyed as they go about that difficult task. But actually, according to Paul, this too has a reciprocal other side to the coin aspect of the relationship. So fourth and finally, fathers, train your children in the Lord. Now I bring your children up in the Lord. Now the word is specifically fathers, but in the same way that brothers can be translated brothers and sisters legitimately, it seems to me this can be applied to fathers and mothers. Even if fathers perhaps are listed specifically as perhaps of a particular responsibility to ensure this happens, or perhaps particularly liable to forget their responsibility in this regard. We don't need to give anyone, I'm not trying to give anyone a guilt trip. These things are always hard. But you see, one of the great thieves of training children is time. We are a culture, aren't we, and I feel this as much as anyone else here does, that, that pressurizes us so much that actually we have little time for our most important investment, our children. And, and it can be hard, can't it? Apparently a curator at Washington Zoo said that most people who come to visit the hippopotamus, the hippopotami uh, there, think they stay underwater for a long time when really... They stay only under the water for 90 seconds, but people just don't take the time to wait that long. Uh, Perhaps you've heard the saying uh, that no one ever got to the end of their life and thought to themselves, I wish I had spent more time in the office. It's so easy, isn't it? And we all find this, again, not a guilt trip, I'm just explaining the difficulties it's so easy, isn't it, for us to say to our children, you know, we'll do that tomorrow. But the reality is, sometimes tomorrow can mean much later. And maybe we'll miss the opportunity for influence as they grow up, and that window of opportunity for influence diminishes. So we need to do this. Now, how do we do it? Well, Paul gives us two very specific instructions one thing not to do, and one thing to do. The thing not to do is not to provoke. What does that mean? Well, provoke means to cause someone to be angry, not to, not to anger, to cause them to be angry, angry. How do you do that? Well, either by asking too much of your children or by treating them as if they're not worthy of any achievement. To not ask too much of your children. This can be a particular difficulty with teenage children, I'm told. I don't have teenage children yet. I will find out. Somehow, though, to find boundaries, yes, but also freedom for a child who's growing up to begin to spread his or her wings. So not provoke. But then also, he says specifically on the positive side, to bring them up in the Lord. That is, the word there is nurturing kind of word, the same word that he used a little earlier in chapter 5, to train, to nurture That is, it's a conscious training program, like training for a sport or training your grass to grow properly or 
nurturing or, or training in a gym. So these children given to you by God can be trained in a certain direction. And if you train them now, all other things being equal, they will continue in that direction. Now, as soon as I say that, as a pastor, I have to immediately say something else, which is that I know it's true that sometimes the most wonderful parents can have the most horrible children. And sometimes the most successful children, using that word success in all its appropriate categories, sometimes the most successful children are the undeserved blessing of negligent parents. What that means is it's all by grace and that we cannot take pride when our children do well, nor can we despair when they do badly. It's grace and mercy. There are unpredictable elements, but all things being equal, again, you know, it is true that if you train a child, just like you train in a gym or you train a flower or you plant a plant to grow in a certain way, pruning here, watering there, all other things being equal, they will tend to grow in that direction. But there's grace and mercy here, and family life needs that. Family life can also make you laugh, can't it? I rather like the story of the couple on their honeymoon who finally got to their honeymoon suite, only to discover exhausted, exasperated, that they got there after midnight or so, that in their honeymoon suite there were two beds separated by a long, big distance. You know. Not the special king they had been promised. And so they called downstairs to the hotel manager explaining that they had booked the honeymoon suite, but uh, he said it had been given to someone else. And, and so he offered instead to tie their beds together with a rope. Which he did. Suddenly, in the middle of the night, the rope broke, and both the couple ended up in a heap on the floor. Honey, the wife said, I think I felt the earth move. Family is real. It's not always easy. Sex in family life is not always perfect. Husbands are not perfect. Wives are not perfect. Children are not perfect. Parents are not perfect. There needs to be mercy and grace. And Paul is weaving these instructions together with this message of the gospel that we might have the power to live out our families in that context. Family life can make us laugh. I, I um, was given the, the, the family car. After it had got really old, it became my car. You know how it works, dads, right? And uh, so I got the family car after it got really old and was cleaning out all the, all the stuff in it, you know, getting it ready. And, and I looked up at the ceiling and I noticed all these spots of juice all up and all over the ceiling. And so I thought, how on earth did that happen? So I asked one of our children and she just laughed and smiled. And you know those juice boxes you can get? And you put the little straws in them and you squeeze. It's... Apparently they've just been having a whale of a time for years in the back. And so up in the scene, and all these little juice spots. You know, family life can make us laugh. That you know, the rotting food discovered behind the sofa, or the equivalent. Changing diapers, you know. Sometimes you have to laugh. It it can make you cry too. It's harder than it looks. You see, here Paul doesn't just give us a whole series of instructions to make us feel bad or inadequate or very special if we actually, our family seems to be going fine just right now. No, he gives us instructions in the context of the message of Ephesians, which is the mystery revealed, 
Christ's death and resurrection means that even Jew and Gentile can be united in Christ, even male and female, even husband and wife, parents and children, even the teenage child who five years earlier the, the, the parent was as cool as could be, but now the child doesn't want to be seen with you unless you wear a paper bag over your head in public or whatever it is. You know. Here there's a promise, a grace, a gospel. See, the very arguments, the very difficulties, the very struggles are intended by God to speak to us, to other people, as we love, as we submit, as we obey, as we train, to speak of the gospel love of Christ for the church. Our families then are little c churches. For the Bible comes down off the shelf. We just read it over a, over a dinner together, you know, or read a bit from Ephesians or something like that. And instead, uh, with the background sound, is a little different. Instead of the background sound being the choir, no, no, we, here we have the, the background sound of little Johnny going potty in the background, you know. And little Jane crying while she's bit her lip because the soup was too hot. And little daddy wrestling with his midlife crisis. And little mummy longing to be adored as she looks at the dress that she used to be able to fit into but cannot now quite squeeze herself into. So what sort of message Christ's love for us? Let's pray together. Father, on this Memorial Day weekend, we we thank you for our families. And Father, we're very aware how easy it is to be holy when it's just us on our own. Yet how hard it is to transpose that holiness to the dinner table or the the good night routine or the, the teenage child or the parent that right now we just find annoying. And yet, Father, in your word, we see how family is intended to speak, to speak a message to us of the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. I pray, Father, that you would help us to live out that message by the power of your Spirit, in all freedom and grace, and with the strength that you, Jesus, alone can provide. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.